Amen. We've, we've, if you've not gone to the uh, Bluegrass Festival, uh, we've been a, a number of times in the last uh, number of years, and uh, it's a I see a lot, a lot of, a lot of people. It's kind of like old home day, seeing people you haven't seen for a while, and uh, so it's, it's a, uh, it's pretty neat. So, all righty. Any other announcements this morning? bags of potatoes there we go I see some zucchini maybe all right well let's go to the Lord in prayer and dear Lord and Heavenly Father we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be in your house today for the beautiful creation that you've given to us in the sunshine and the rain we thank you for uh, our families we thank you for our salvation we thank you for our church family. We pray that uh, as we go through difficulties, as we go through those good times and difficult times, we thank you for our Christian family, our church family here. We pray that you would help us to uh, be an encouragement to one another as, as sometimes we go through difficult times. Thank you that we can be here this morning in your house we pray that you just uh, help us to forget those things that we need to be doing this afternoon, what we're going to have for lunch. And we pray that you would help us to uh, focus on you this morning and that your Holy Spirit would be working in our lives. We pray that you would help us to be more like you each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Our call to worship this morning will be found on the back of your bulletin, and if you'd like to stand, and we will have our call to worship, which is uh, Psalm 133, and then we will go right uh, into singing uh, number 96 in your green book. Let's stand. Behold how good and pleasant it is when, when brothers, brothers dwell in unity. unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running, running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Amen. Life forevermore. Amen. And if you turn to number 96, we will sing, O sing, which is to the tune of all hail the power of Jesus' name. Stay. 
Come forward for the morning offering, please. Do you still have that song there, Dottie? Amazing Love. Do you still have that there? Let's stand and sing. Amazing Love. How can, let's just the chorus. Amazing Love. How can it be that thou, my God, oh, didst die? The, right? the one you just played for the offertory. Oh. And yeah. yeah, I was going to say, and just the chorus. Amazing Love, right? Uh, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? I think I missed something there. Did I miss, what, 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 what song is that? What number is that? 347. Let's sing, I just love that song. Let's sing 347. And can it be? And let's take it down a notch. All right. Yes, the whole song. <laughs> can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me to cause his pain for me? death pursued amazing love how can it be that thou my God should die for me amazing love how can it be that thou my God should die for me Amen. You may be seated. I love that song. All right. And now we'll get back to the order of service. <laughs> Our scripture reading this morning will be found in Matthew 26, starting with verse 17. If you'd like to follow along, Matthew 26, starting in verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened, unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, And my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, 
but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word today. Now, if you turn to number 342, let's stand and sing all three verses of Rock of Ages, and then we will sing uh, number 690, He Leadeth Me. Number 342, we'll sing all three verses. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Could my tears forever flow could my zeal no longer know? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. In my hand no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. While I draw this fleeting breath, Number 690, 690. <clears throat> he leadeth me. Let's sing all three verses. Hey. 
my task on earth is done when by thy grace the victory is won in death's cold wave i will not flee since god through jordan leadeth me he leadeth me he leadeth me by his own hand he leadeth me his faithful follower i would be for by his hand he leadeth me you may be seated thank you good morning church we're going to take some time now to go to the Lord together in prayer. Our Father and our God, we, we come to you this morning and we thank you and we praise you that though you possess glory which can undo us, that though you possess power, which would amaze us if we were to get a, a sense of its reality. That when we come to you in and through Jesus' name, you greet us with kindness and with the patient, steadfast love of the gentlest and strongest Father. We praise you and we thank you, Lord, that when we come to you in prayer, we do not come to someone who is in danger of greeting us with anything less than absolute, perfect love and strength. We come to you this morning and we praise you and thank you as Christians, as ones who have come to know Jesus, for the work that you have done in our lives in bringing us from death to life, that we once walked in darkness, we once walked according to the pattern of the world, we once walked in slavery to our sins, and we praise you, Lord, that you stepped in, that you saved us, that even when we were dead in our sins, you made us alive with Christ, that by grace you've saved us. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that though we were rebels against you, condemned, that in Christ you've raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. What a wonder that, that we who in our sins deserve death, you've lavished on us the promise of eternal life with Jesus forever. That you've promised to show us the immeasurable riches of your grace and kindness towards us in Jesus. And not only that, but that you've called us to a life of usefulness. That you've prepared works beforehand for us to walk in. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done in our lives. We thank you for not leaving us in the darkness. We thank you for bringing us to the light. And as we praise you and thank you, Lord, for your past deliverance, we are reminded, too, we still need deliverance. We know, Lord, that we are sinners, that even this week we have erred and strayed from your ways like, like stupid lost sheep. We know ourselves too well. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. O Lord, have mercy on us. Spare those who confess their faults. Restore those who are repentant. We ask, Lord, that you'd forgive us according to the promises, the wonderful, bold 
promises you have declared to all people in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we ask, Lord, that for his sake and by his power and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would enable us from this day forward, Lord, to walk in the light. And that when we fall, you'd enable us to confess and to turn again. That more and more day by day, you'd be making us like Jesus. Let's take a moment now to silently confess our sins unto God. Come into the light with him. Hear now these words from Psalm 103, which I think are especially directed to anyone who might fear that there might not be willingness in God to totally forgive our sins. From Psalm 103, this is the promise of the word of God. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. Amen. Father, we ask your blessing over the rest of our service this morning. We pray for our hearts that as we come into your presence and as we come in under the teaching of your word that you'd keep us from blindness of heart, from pride and vanity and hypocrisy, from envy hatred and malice from all lack of love Lord that you would deliver us that you deliver us from disordered and sinful affections that you deliver us Lord from the lies of the world the flesh and the devil you give us minds and hearts which love and can recognize your truth we ask Lord your blessing over your church we pray that you would Watch over those who lead uh, in our local church context and also those who serve as pastors and elders in, in the churches of Waldo County, Lord, that you'd, um, that you'd encourage them and lift them up. They'd have true knowledge and understanding of your word. We ask, Lord, your blessing over our sister churches, those that are around us and those with whom we share fellowship. We ask your blessing over the saints in, at Palermo Christian and those at Veracity Chapel and Christ the King and Little River Church and those at Faith Church of God in Belfast, Lord, we ask that you'd bless these saints and those others um, from churches I haven't mentioned, Lord, that you'd um, encourage them in godliness this morning and that, uh, that uh, these churches would continue to be built for your glory, Lord, Calvary Chapel, those others. We thank you for the ministries of these churches and we pray, Lord, that you'd make them strong, that they would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that in our generation, you'd raise up a new generation of, of elders and of pastors in your churches. We ask, Lord, that you'd do that in our church. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, raise up a generation of men who love your word, and who are bold to proclaim it, We pray, Lord, that as a generation of pastors are retiring from main pulpits, that you'd raise up a generation to take their place. 
We ask, Lord, that as we come to your word this morning, you would give us hearts which love your word, which hunger for your word, which hunger to hear a word from your mouth that we might be filled. We ask, Lord, your blessing over all who are here this morning, that you would strengthen those who stand, that you'd encourage the faint-hearted, that you'd raise up those who fall, and Lord, finally, that you would give us victory, that you would, you would beat down our, our enemies, sin and Satan underneath our feet, as we walk in the victory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. O Lamb of God, Lord Jesus, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us this morning. Lord, have mercy. We pray all these in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together as Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Good stand. Uh, our final song before the message is number 205, In Christ Alone, and we'll sing all of the verses. Thank you.
Well, we're continuing this morning our series through our proposed, uh, church's proposed confession of faith. So that's what we've been working through this summer, and we're getting towards the end. All right, so I think we've got three or four weeks left, and we'll be done with this. So this really is kind of a summer series, and, uh, and what we're moving through is a, a church's proposed confession of faith. So it's a summary of what we believe as a church, which we're hoping to adopt as a church to say, this is what we stand on, this is what we believe as a church. And so what we're looking at this morning is actually going to be found inside your bulletin on the back side of the bulletin insert. It's entitled, Of Baptism and the Lord's Supper. So that's what we're talking about this morning, uh, which should sound familiar, because just two weeks ago we had a baptism and we took the Lord's Supper, right? And so uh, part of what we're going to go over is what this, uh, this section of the confession states, which is a pretty straightforward definition of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we'll look at that, um, and, uh, but I'm not going to belabor it because we've talked about a lot of what's here quite a lot recently. And so my hope for us this morning is first to look briefly at these definitions to see these are biblical, we want to understand what this means, how these work, um, but then I want to go beyond that. And I, I want us to ask the question, uh, what power is there in terms of living the Christian life, in baptism and the Lord's Supper. So I believe Scripture teaches that there is, there's power in these things. There's power in remembering our baptism. There's power in discerning the body when we come to the Lord's table and understanding all that that means. And so um, my hope for us this morning is, yes, that we would understand what baptism is, what the Lord's Supper is, but more than that, that we would see how it is the Lord is calling us actually to grow in and through these things. I'd like to pray before we begin. So let's, let's go again to the Lord. We need his help. Our Father and our God, we, we come to you this morning with an understanding we need you. We need you. We, in our discouragement, in our confusion, wherever we are coming to you this morning in our hectic busyness, in our stress, in our guilt, in our shame, we need you. We need your word. We know that your words are life, like a living stream. And so we pray, Lord, that as we come to your word this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would lift us up, and that your words would be to us like crystal clear water. Uh, at Lord, that these things would refresh our souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's jump right in to the definition we have here inside the bulletin of baptism in the Lord's Supper. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. If you were to ask us, what is baptism? Well, here's a definition. Christian baptism is, first of all, the immersion, right? And this means washing, right? Foundationally, this is what the word means. Baptism uh, is, uh, is washing with water, and specifically, washing with a lot of water. Immersion meaning you're going all the way under. Uh, and that would be the Baptist understanding of, uh, of, of, uh, of baptism, uh, partly because of the definition of the word in the original language. It means immersion, washing with, with water, um, but also because of the symbolism, that this means baptism is a grave, right? We're actually buried in baptism, and so we'd say, we don't just want a little water, we want a lot of water, right, in our, in our ordinary practice of baptism. But specifically, that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer, of a believer, and this really would be the key Baptist distinctive on the question of baptism. Of baptism. Uh, some churches, some Christian Bible-believing churches with faithful brothers and sisters would teach, uh, for example, a doctrine of infant baptism, right, that, that children um, who have not professed faith, could, children of believers, should be baptized. And, and we would say, we don't see that in Scripture, that what we see in Scripture again and again and again, every example we have of baptism in Scripture is of people who have put their faith in Jesus and who've made that public, 
who've turned to Christ saying, I want to be baptized on the profession of my faith. And that's what we see uh, in scripture over and over and over again. And so uh, that's how we would define baptism. The Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And, uh, and this, this question of being baptized into the triune name, this isn't up for debate. This is something that all Christians everywhere have agreed to, right? That to be baptized is to be baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You could be a believer who's gotten all the way wet, but if the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit hasn't been spoken over it, it's not baptism. So, so there's the baptism. That's the definition. And then it, the uh, confession goes on to answer the question, well, what does it mean? What is baptism's significance? Well, we're told here that it shows forth, it proclaims, it displays, right? Baptism is water that speaks, it shouts, right? It tells us something. It shows forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to a new life. What, what does the water proclaim? Proclaims, Jesus has died and risen, and I've died and risen with him. <laughs> right? By faith in him, I've been buried with Christ, and I've been raised again. Right? What does baptism proclaim? It proclaims the gospel, what Jesus has done, and what he's accomplished in my life through his work. That's what baptism proclaims. And I want us to see that there's, there's power in remembering our baptism. Um, it's easy to kind of to get baptized at the beginning of the Christian life and to figure, okay, good, that's out of the way. I can move on to you know, the, the real Christian life now, right? And I, I don't really have to think about my baptism anymore. But it's interesting, the Apostle Paul invokes the memory of our baptism as a powerful tool in the process of sanctification. So we'll see this in Romans 6, which is a passage we looked at, again, not, not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago at the baptism. But I want, us to, I want to look at this from a slightly different angle. At the beginning of Romans 6, Paul deals with a question which is one of the most common questions I've, I get as a pastor, which is basically this. If Jesus has forgiven my sins, all my sins, past, present, future, then what's keeping me from continuing to sin? <laughs> right? Uh, can't I just go on living in the way I've always lived? Right? What? There's not any consequence for it anymore, right? And so this is a common question that people raise, and it was a question that was raised to Paul, and he deals with this question here, and, and, and what I was thinking through this week as I was looking at this passage is, if I'm asked that question, what's my first, like, knee-jerk response? I might go to, like, James, right, where James says faith without works is dead. Say, okay, say, well, you may say that, right, but if you have true faith, it's going to be accompanied by works, right? Uh, or I might say, well, Jesus says repent and believe, right? That's the gospel call. It's not just believe, it's repent and believe, right? Turn from your sins. But it's interesting, Paul doesn't point to either of those things. Those would have been good things to point to. Paul says, remember your baptism. It's very interesting. What I was thinking about this week was, that's not something I would think to say. Which, as I've been praying through it this week, I think the, I think the Lord's critiquing me. He's saying, I don't think you think about baptism exactly in the way I think about baptism. So what does Paul say? Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? There's the question, right? We just go on sinning, right? And the more we sin, the more God shows grace, and more grace is good, right? We go on sinning, grace abounds. And what does Paul say? He says, by no means, by no means, absolutely not. What does he say? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, right? This Corinthian church is writing to him, and they're living in all kinds of strange and unusual forms of sin and debauchery, right? This Corinthian church is a mess if you read these letters, right? They're still walking in the ways they walked before they came to Christ. And what does Paul say to them? He says, look, guys, you've been baptized. Live like it. You've come to Jesus. You've put your faith in him. You've been made one with him. You've been baptized into his name. And if that's the case, you're, you don't live in your own life anymore. right? He says, you're dead to sin because you put your faith in Jesus. Because you've come to him, because you belong to him. And baptism is a sign of this. He says, don't you remember when, when I put you under the water? Right? I'm sorry, this is, I said Corinthian church. This is the Roman church. That's incorrect. He's writing to the Roman church. But he says, if you're asking this question, you're thinking in the wrong direction. Don't you know you've been baptized? Don't you know that you've died to sin? Don't you know that in Christ you've been raised with, with him? You've been raised to new life. And so Paul is actually invoking baptism as a kind of tool we can wield in our battle for sanctification, our battle against sin. It's a really interesting story It's told about Martin Luther. Luther viewed baptism in some ways differently than we would think, but he certainly saw baptism as a tool he could, he could wield in a spiritual battle, which I think is something we could learn from. Um, Luther dealt with bouts of spiritual depression and, and a sense of real spiritual oppression throughout his life and particularly throughout his ministry when he started preaching the gospel he just started getting attacked left and right um, by physical and spiritual enemies and the almost the worst period of the spiritual darkness was when he was in exile he was almost in prison um, uh, in the uh, in this castle um, in uh, kind of out in the hinterlands in Germany. He was hidden away there by a wealthy lord because he was on the run from the powers that be. And, and it was there, he stayed there for a couple of years and he actually translated the whole Bible into German. He was busy, right, while he was out there alone. But he was also under attack. This was his sense, that he was under spiritual attack um, by spiritual powers of darkness. And at one point, at what he sensed was the height of one of these spiritual attacks, um, so the story goes, he picked up his inkwell as he's writing at his desk. He picked up his inkwell and he threw it across the room. And he shouted at the top of his lungs, I have been baptized. And at least for the moment, the spiritual darkness sort of dispelled. Because what he was shouting, what he was remembering was who he was through what Jesus had made him. Right? I have been baptized. I'm no longer who I was. I have died in Christ. I have been raised in him, right? And there's something power in almost, powerful almost in remembering that. Right? I can remember, I was nine or ten, I can remember the feeling of going under and being wrenched out, right? Understanding that's what Christ has done for me. And in the face of temptation and sin to say, I have been baptized. That's not who I am anymore. I am dead to that. I am alive in Christ. There's power in that. There's power in remembering our baptism. Well, the confession goes on. It says, we believe that it, baptism, is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and ordinarily to the Lord's Supper. Prerequisite. I remember learning that word in my freshman year of high school, and I was looking at all the classes I wanted to take and realizing, oh, some of these have prerequisites, right? Some of these classes, I have to take another class first in order to get to that one, right? You can't take Algebra 2 before you take Algebra 1. Not that you'd want to, but that it's prerequisite. So the confession is saying that baptism is a prerequisite to something. It's got to come before something. And specifically that baptism comes before church fellowship in the form of membership and participation in the Lord's Supper. Now, we talked about this two weeks ago at the baptism, but I want to talk about it a little more in depth. And, and to, uh, to do that, I want to turn to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. This is why I have Corinthians on the mind. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to look at chapter 11 here in a minute, but right now we're in 12. 
and verse 12. He's writing to the Corinthian church, and he's talking about what it means that they're a church. And he introduces this idea of a body. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. He says, we know how this works with our body. We have lots of parts, but it's all one body. He says, it's the same with the church. We are one body in Christ, and we're all little parts. And not just in this congregation, right? Around the world, right? We're the, we are the body of Christ, and we're all parts of it. And so he goes on in verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. How does he say we got into the body? He says we were baptized into it, right? Because baptism stands at, at the entrance of the Christian life. Right? It stands at the beginning, right? That this is, uh, in some ways, baptism is the door into which the Christian life is the, the home, right? And, and, and the, the church is the home, right? In order to get to the fellowship of the kitchen table, we've got to come in the front door first, right? Occasionally, some people will jump in through the window, and I don't know how they got in there, right? But usually, it's through baptism, right? Baptism is this, this usual entrance. And so, as a church, and this isn't anything new, we've, we've always required, if you're going to be officially a member of the church, a part of the, the, the official fellowship of the church, you need to be baptized, right? Because how do we get into the body? We're baptized into the body. This is a sign, right? A Baptism is a sign of our fellowship with Christ, and if we belong to Christ, then we're part of his body, right? So as we're baptized into Christ, we're also baptized into his body. Uh, it, confession also mentions here, ordinarily, that baptism is also a prerequisite to the Lord's Supper. And this, too, I think is important to, to emphasize. Historically, this is the teaching of most Christian churches, that that those welcome to the Lord's Supper are those who've been baptized. And it's worth asking the question, if you want to come to the table of Jesus, then why haven't you been baptized into Jesus, right? That if you want to enjoy the fellowship of the family of Jesus and of the body of Jesus, then you need to be baptized into Jesus. Now, the deacons and I added a word here. We added ordinarily. Right? This wasn't in the original language of the confession. And we added this because we're convinced there can be exceptions, right? Um, and that there, there are exceptions under which a person might, for some reason, not have been able to be baptized, um, where we'd still want to welcome them into the fellowship of the, uh, fellowship of the, the table, okay? Um, so we're not putting this down as a kind of a black and white rule, but it's, as, a, as a general rule, you don't come in the window, right? You come in the front door. All right, well, the confession goes on. It says, we believe that in the Lord's Supper, the members of the church, that's us, that's everyone who trusts in Christ, by the sacred use of the bread and cup, are to commemorate together the dying love of Christ, preceded always by solemn self-examination. So what is the Lord's Supper? Well, it's this practice we do once a month when we gather together and we eat bread and we drink the cup as a commemoration of the dying love of Christ. We know these things. We explain this every time we take the, the Lord's Supper, right? What are we doing in the Lord's Supper? We're remembering and proclaiming Christ. The bread as a sign of his body. The cup as a sign of his blood. His love in giving himself for us and for our sins. I think most of us understand this basic symbolism. What I want to focus in on is this last line that the Lord's Supper is to be preceded always by solemn self-examination. And I'll be honest with you, when I was first reading through this confession, as we were going in the beginning stages of asking, like, what, what statement should we adopt? I thought, I kind of want to cut out that last line because it made me uncomfortable. Not for a biblical reason, for a, pers for a personal reason, for something that's wrong with me. Because my experience growing up and coming to the Lord's table, um, after I was baptized, my parents said, okay, we want you to participate in the Lord's Supper. And so I, I did. I would eat of the bread and I would drink of the cup. But I had this, um, and this is my own problem, but I think, it's a, I think it's a problem a lot of people can share when it comes to the Lord's table. 
is when I would come, I would feel a deep sense of my own unworthiness to come. I felt that this was a sacred thing, which it is, a heavy thing. And I had a sense every time I came to the table like, I'm not sure I really belong here. I know I believe in Jesus, but I feel like I'm too much of a sinner really to eat with him. And so, and this was a result of what I would call morbid introspection. I was, I was focused to a fault on my own sins. I was coming to the table and I wasn't focused on Jesus, I was focused on myself, right? Which is actually a form of pride, interestingly. That's not the solemn self-examination we're talking about. There is a kind of solemn self-examination commanded by scripture when we come to the table. And that's something Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11. So you can flip a page back in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul talks about the Lord's Supper to the church in Corinth. Now it's the church in Corinth, not the church in Rome, that was a a hive of, a, a, uh, a den of villainy. Um, Paul has a lot of hard words for the church in Corinth, especially around the Lord's Supper. Take a look at verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 11. He says this, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He says, When you come together, you have a meal together, but it's not Jesus' meal. They're doing the Lord's Supper wrong, and there's something we can learn from this. What are they doing wrong? Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I shall not. He goes on in verse 33, he says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So the picture we get of the Corinthian church and the picture scholars have kind of put together is um, in the Corinthian church, like many churches, there were those who had much and there were those who had little. And those wealthy members of the Corinthian church, it seems, were gathering together at a time earlier in the day when those in the working class could not be there, right? They're getting together before five. Maybe the church service started at 3.30 or something, right? And they'd have a bunch of food. And they'd gather, presumably, in one of the wealthy church members' homes. That, that would be one of the bigger ones, right, where everyone could fit. And so they'd gather together, and they had a meal, and apparently... The wealthy members of the church were eating all of the food and drinking all of the wine before those other folks showed up. And so there's nothing, nothing left to eat. And so Paul says, is this the Lord's Supper? He says, no, this is nothing of the kind. The Corinthian church was not focused on Jesus, and they weren't even focused on each other. They were focused on themselves and their own needs, on their own lusts, their own hunger. So Paul, Paul finds nothing to commend in their practice of the Lord's Supper. In verses 23 through 26, Paul g- gives them the words of institution. These are the words I read every time we take the Lord's Supper. Right? When Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so then Paul tells them this, verse 27. And this is intense if we're actually gonna take this seriously. If we're actually gonna take the word of God at face value. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There's that word examine. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. This is intense. Paul is saying, this practice of the Lord's Supper is such a sacred thing, held in such honor by God, that the Corinthians' defilement of the table was actually resulting in God's judgment falling on some of them. Some had grown sick and some had even died as a result of approaching the gathering of the saints and the celebration of the table in a casual way. Or in other words, this is supposed to be a big deal. There's actually power at work when we gather together and celebrate the supper. He says, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Not that Jesus' body is physically present on the table. Some Christian churches have taught that. We would deny that. We'd say, no, Jesus' body is present at the right hand of the Father. But Jesus is symbolically present on the table, and he's spiritually present with us. Jesus is here. And Paul is saying, if we approach this table in a casual way, we're actually guilty concerning Jesus. So what does this mean for us practically? I don't think we're in danger of, of the exact path of the Corinthian era, error. Um, there's not even really enough food here when we celebrate the Lord's Supper for us to, uh, to fill our bellies, right? Um, The bread is too small, the, the cup is too small for that to be a danger. But I think we would still do well to, to pay heed to Paul's command to discern the body, right? Practically, what does he tell us to do? Verse 29, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we need to learn to discern the body, right? Whatever that means. So what does it mean to discern the body? And this is, a, this is a verse some scholars have gone back and forth on, and there's kind of two main schools of thought, and I think probably both might be right. So one school of thought says, when, when Paul says body here, he's referring to the, the elements, right? Because throughout this passage, he's referring to, well, the body and blood of the Lord, along with the bread and the cup, right? So he's, some scholars say, when he's saying discern the body, he's saying take this symbolism seriously that when we're dealing with bread and cup, we're actually, in a spiritual sense, dealing with Jesus. Right? That, that we shouldn't approach the table thinking about ourselves or our, our own desires. We should be approaching the table thinking about Jesus. Okay? This is about Christ. Um, I think there's something in that. And I think there's something in that because that's a part of the critique of the Corinthian church, right? They weren't thinking about Jesus when they came to the table. They were thinking about their own desires. They were thinking about themselves, right? It's worth asking ourselves, okay, when I come to the table, what's going on in my heart? Is this about Jesus? Or is this about, in some way, elevating or exalting myself? It's possible to do that, right? It's possible to come to the table like a Pharisee, like a legalist, and you're not actually thinking about Jesus. You're not thinking about his spirit. You're not thinking about his salvation. You're thinking about how you're going to look. You're thinking about how you're, you're making yourself look, right? But, well, everyone's going to see that I'm taking, right? It's like, no, that's not what it's about. But it's interesting to notice when he says discerning the body, um, he doesn't say discerning the body and blood, which I think... I think leads me to think there's also something in the other interpretation which says Paul here is talking about discerning the body, discerning the people of God, understanding that when we come to the table, we're doing it as a part of the body of Christ, which ties in with the way Paul uses this word body in just the next chapter, which we already saw, right? That he, when he uses body, he, he, he sometimes also is thinking in terms of the body of Christ, that is the church. And so there's another way of coming to the table without discerning the body, which the Corinthians were also guilty of, which is coming to the table and not being in fellowship with each other. They were coming together and gathering before the whole church was even there. 
right? And then eating everything, and there wasn't anything left, right? They weren't discerning the body. They weren't actually coming to the, fel- coming to the table in fellowship with their brothers and sisters. Now, again, I'm not sure we're, guilt- we're prone to be guilty of exactly that error in the way the Corinthians were, but it's worth asking ourselves, when we come to the table, are we cognizant of, are we, in, are we thinking about the fact that we're in fellowship with brothers and sisters? We don't come alone, right? We don't come here on a, you know, on a Thursday morning to take the Lord's Supper by ourselves, right? We, we do this together. It's a, it's a part of this corporate gathered worship. So it's worth asking ourselves, especially in light of what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Remember, Jesus gives this warning he says, if you're going to go and offer a sacrifice, speaking in Old Testament terms, you're going to go up and offer a sacrifice, you're going to go worship God, and there's something between you and a brother, something between you and a sister, you've got to go take care of that before you come. And I think that's worth thinking about in terms of the Lord's Supper. If we're coming to the Lord's Supper and there's unrepentant sin between us and someone else in the church, we're coming to the table and lying about our fellowship. We're coming up beside that person and eating and drinking and saying, we're in fellowship together in Jesus and you aren't, right? It's possible to do that. And so I think the Lord's Supper can be a helpful check for us, right? Jesus says when you go up to the temple, well, we don't go up to the temple anymore, right? But when we come to the table, it's worth asking, am I in disfellowship with someone? And it's almost like a, like, like a monthly drain cleaner, Right? Like, okay, I can't move past this point and partake in this unless the accounts are clear. And so, Lord's Supper is a couple of weeks away now. Maybe be thinking in the next couple of weeks. Like, if you get to the Lord's Supper in two weeks and there's a brother or the sister in the church who you've sinned against or who's sinned against you and you haven't resolved it and there's like coldness and tension there, and like you're not talking, that's a problem. And you can't come to the table with them until you've resolved it, right? It's like when you, you're arguing with your spouse or with a friend and you sit down to a meal. Um, like you could sit through the whole meal in cold silence, right? And that would be miserable. And you'd be eating, but it wouldn't really be a meal together. It wouldn't actually be fellowship, right? And the thing you have to do before you sit down is say, I'm sorry. I've been a jerk this afternoon. I shouldn't have said what I said. That was sin against you, and I'm, I'm sorry. Can you forgive me? Right? And then you can start talking. Right? Then there's fellowship. And how much better is that? That's actually like a family. Right? That's actually a relationship. That's how it's meant to be in the church, too. Um, so the Lord's Supper is a, is a powerful check in that direction. It has been for me, in light of Paul's warning here, this thing about getting sick and dying isn't hyperbole. It's actually true. It's actually true. There is, there, we encounter a powerful thing when we gather together that ought not to be trifled with. And so keeping these things in mind, at least in my own life, has been helpful. Where when I come to the Lord's Supper, it's like, I, I better be taking these things seriously. Right? Where maybe I've been trifling with this, my spiritual life the last few days and I come to the table, it's like, okay, I need to, I need to get things right, right? It's a helpful, helpful check for us. There's power in baptism. There's power in the Lord's Supper. These are tools the Lord can use to grow us, to change us, to make us more like Jesus. Um, we ought not to think that these are um, powerless, meaningless symbols, we, as Baptists, we're, we're on the, the low church end of understanding the ordinances, where we're prone to talk more about what they aren't than what they are. And we should understand, though, though we would deny some of what other sort of high church traditions would say about um, what we would think of as sort of like magical things happening, um, these are powerful things through which God works. We want to hold them in a, in a sacred place. Let's pray. 
Our Father and our God, we thank you for the gifts of baptism in the Lord's Supper, and we thank you for the ways which we've experienced in our own lives that you've encouraged and lifted us up and pointed us to the gospel in and through these things. And we ask, Lord, that in the life of this church, that you'd continue to lift us up and encourage us in these things, that week after week, month after month, year after year, you would show us Jesus as we come to the table together. You would show us Jesus in the waters of baptism, that you would remind us of who you are and of who we are in you through these powerful pictures which you have given us. We ask, Lord, that you teach us to treat these things as sacred things and that we would understand, Lord, the weight and the significance which you have put behind them and that the power which you work in them would be powerful in our own lives to shape us to look more like Jesus, both as individuals and as a church community. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for all that you're doing among us. We ask, Lord, that your will would be done and that your kingdom would come in our lives, in Liberty, Maine, as it is in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together and we'll close the service by singing the doxology together. Let's stand. Praise God from whom.